Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Today, my guest is psychologist Helen Elliott. Helen's life was on a steady course in her 20s. She'd always been curious about people, and as a young woman, she decided to become a clinical psychologist. A few years later, Helen was a wife and mum with three small kids and a job in a busy private practice, when things for her started to unravel. After a longed-for family holiday to America, she found herself falling further and further down into a terrible depression. It was so severe that doctors began to fear for her life. After she was restrained in a locked ward, Helen agreed to electroconvulsive therapy in a last-ditch attempt to save her life. And a warning, we will be talking frankly about mental illness this hour. Hi, Helen. Hi, Sarah. Tell me about where you grew up, Helen. Were you part of a big family? Um, part of a big family. I've got five brothers and sisters, and I grew up in Canberra. And what sort of childhood did you have? Were you, were you a busy kid um, yeah, or a reading busy, kid? Um, busy family. Uh, we, we lived close to Mount Ainsley, so I used to enjoy going up and bike riding and walking up the mountain. Uh, I swam um, in a swimming club and, um, yeah, many happy, happy times in Canberra. And did you go to uni in Canberra I as did. Well? I went to the Australian National University in Canberra. And what did you study? I studied a Bachelor of Science uh, and then I went on and did honours and a Master of Clinical Psychology. And why did you want to do psychology, do you think? Uh, I think I enjoyed sort of talking to people and um, at a, probably a young age I, I felt a sense of empathy for other people's um, concerns and um, I think probably relevant too was that I had quite a bit of my own anxiety and um, from an early age or adolescent I sort of worked quite hard to manage that uh, so I had a sense of empathy for people particularly with anxiety and I um, had learnt my own ways of, of managing it. What so, sort of ways when you were an adolescent? Well, I think I'd probably call it uh, a social anxiety um, certainly so I learnt ways of sort of breathing to calm the anxiety uh, because social anxiety is such a condition where you're very aware of the physical symptoms like blushing and shaking I did um, learn that um, accepting those symptoms really helped me to to get through I'm sure one of the reasons I work in radio Helen is because I blush terribly <laughs> but no one knows so we can both blush away and that's totally fine <laughs> Well, just accept it, Sarah, and you'll be right. <laughs> did you start working then as a as a psychologist? Yes, I did a master's in Canberra, and then uh, probably one of my biggest uh, my first uh, roles was when I moved to Brisbane, and I worked in a mental health setting, uh, which covered both um, inpatient and out in the community. So I had a had a great role really because I was a case manager as well as a psychologist, which meant I got to see people in their lives, people young people also that had um, significant mental illness like schizophrenia um, and bipolar disorder. So um, I was sort of thrown in the deep end yeah. as a young person. What um, was a, a typical day for you as a psychologist? I mean, what sort of clients were you spending time with? Uh, so young, so I can think particularly of young people who, um, you know, males say in their 20s or females with schizophrenia, uh, chronic conditions and Part of my role would be to sort of travel to, to see them. They're a little bit out of the area that um, where I was, you know, based. And um, you would sort of help them to be involved in rehabilitation activities. I did a great trip to Harvey Bay once um, to see the whales with the people, um, you know, what we call the clients, I guess. So, and a lot of just monitoring that they were taking their medication, um, visits to the hospital if they had um, become that unwell. You would have probably heard fairly... You know, painful, fairly traumatic stories in dealing with patients, people yes, like that too. Yes, yeah. So it gave me a big insight into what it's like to live with a, a major mental illness. Um, something like schizophrenia isn't something you'd wish on on anyone, really. The the sense of living your life with hearing voices that are sort of tormenting. That that was I really see that as a it was a great great role for me, great experience. And then you started working in a in a practice, seeing patients come to you. What yes. sort of stories did you hear there? Uh, so yes, I. Um, Worked in private practice in more recent years. Again, everyone was um, not sort of what often people talk about the worried well when you work in a clinic 
<laughs> in the suburbs. But uh, there are a lot of very sad stories, a lot of people who've experienced abuse, um, young people who are experiencing significant grief, uh, loss of parents. I also, um, towards the end of my time at working private practice, was seeing, uh, I was seeing quite a lot of um, veterans from Afghanistan, young men who had seen terrible things but also come home to um, the loss of um, you know, good friends or mates through suicide. And what kind of effect did that start? To have on you, Helen, spending your days hearing, you know, really um, challenging things. Yeah, well, I, I guess I mean I saw it as a, a privilege to sit with people and um, and be there to, um, you know, to be there with them as they sort of talked about uh, those painful experiences, and um, and I and I enjoyed it too to be you know to do my role and also to see improvements with people how they were feeling with trying you know some psychological strategies and um, but in the meantime I was sort of trying to run a young family as well so three um, young primary school aged children so I was sort of running between um, that role as a you know psychologist a therapist and uh, and being a mother and a wife and um, you know and just trying to um, keep everything afloat. Yeah, I, th I think often when parents have young kids, work can almost be like a, 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 a you know, a, a holiday, a vacation almost from the intensity of home. But the kind of work you were doing, did you feel like you were getting a break from the demands of being a mum when you were talking to those? Um, no, no, I wasn't. And um, it, well, it didn't feel sort of like going into, I don't think office jobs are easy or anything, but it didn't feel like I was going in really for a break. I was seeing, um, you know, people who had um, had children try to take their lives, who were trying to live with that, and then going home to my own family. And uh, it wasn't a break. I would have a very small break um, in the day because of the way my contract uh, was set up. So I only had a very brief break and I would try and go outside and try and be mindful. Um, but it wasn't really enough time to sort of unwind and then was go back to home. Was there anyone you could debrief with, other colleagues? Or? Um, not particularly on, on the day because you had such scheduled sort of appointments. Um, so there'd be the opportunity if you needed to organise that. Um, but uh, I think it was just sort of, yes, this scheduling of appointments and then, um, you know, doing, spending an hour with each person and um, and then trying to, yeah, get off to school, pick up and <laughs> uh, yes. deal with the emotional needs at home. Did, did you ever think, you know, maybe this is, is taking too much of a toll, maybe I'll leave this work? Um, I've always been a very conscientious person and not good with change probably so I actually felt when I was in my last role that um, as a in private practice that I'd sort of found a good niche for myself and um, but I think just as it became increasingly busier um, I sort of lost I didn't sort of stop I don't think I wasn't stopping at all I was seeing you know clients and then you know dealing with the um, the demands of a family and um, I, yeah, I wasn't really aware I think so much of what was happening You went on a, a overseas trip with your family in, in 2013, the yes. end of 2013, early 2014 How was that trip? Um, well, I was excited about the trip because uh, we were going off to America and so three young children and I'd managed to find there was a conference on psychotherapy in Anaheim, so <laughs> right near Disneyland. Everyone's needs are met, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was a very hectic time in the lead up to the trip. I was, you know, doing the work that I was doing. I uh, was trying to get organised for the going away. Um, I'd experienced some significant loss that year. I'd lost someone that was very dear to me. And um, I think I was also starting to consider that I would have in the following year three different schools for the children. And people had sort of said to me, how are you going to cope with that? And I was sort of laughed it off. But I think that was sort of starting to loom that I had this, you know, significant changes. And um, so sort of, and then we headed off on the trip and um, and the trip was, yeah, they were great. We saw, you know, some really happy memories and uh, we saw quite a bit of America and, um, yeah, it was, it was great. What about coming home, Helen? Um, coming home, of course, you have the jet lag um, of a big trip and um, came, flew back into Brisbane and it was, you know, 40 degrees heat, I think. And um, I don't think we had great air conditioning at the time. But um, I was, you know, I was aware that I was starting back work, you know, I think later that week or so. And um, I suddenly, um, well, I don't know whether I could say suddenly, but I developed insomnia. 
So I just... How bad was it? Terrible. So I couldn't sleep um, at all. And so what, you'd go to bed and, and lie there awake? Yes. Or what was a night, a typical night like? Um, well, I think just straight away I just went into a complete sort of up all night. Uh, the jet lag and the heat wouldn't have helped. And, um, and I quickly became aware that I needed to get to the GP. Um, I'd had, because I'd had experienced anxiety before, um, I did feel like taking um, an antidepressant, um, which targets anxiety, I, I had done that in the past, would help me. And so did it feel that the not being able to sleep was because of anxiety? Yes, it, I think it sort of started to kick in this insomnia and, um, and I couldn't sort of calm down. But I think I had been in the previous year, 2013, becoming unwell. So I think looking back now I can tell that my you know I was sort of racing from one you know from A to B I had quite a tight chest trying to get from the therapy you know room to the school um so I think that was all accumulating and then just with the combination of jet lag the heat and the whole sense that I was on a treadmill in my mind it was like I was on this treadmill trying to plan um you know I had to get this one a new uniform this one a new uniform and how we were going to do the drop-offs and um and there was this job I had to go back to where I had to see you know numerous people and um and it just all became um too much in my mind but you went to a gp and yes. did you get antidepressants yes i i um started an antidepressant that i had taken in the past um because i'd had experiences of agitation after having each of my children i um had that sense of um, not being able to sleep again and agitated so i'd had good success in the past with taking a um what they call an ssri antidepressant so um, but this time it didn't didn't help. Did it have any effect that you were aware no, of? No, not at all. So in the beginning, often with these type of antidepressants, you can get an increased anxiety, which I've been aware of, and um, it's worth persevering and um, and getting the payoff then when your mind starts to settle. But in this time, this case, it wouldn't um, it wouldn't do anything. I just um, I just continued to not sleep at all. And the um, anxious rumination just got um, worse. And did it get to a point where, I guess, you're anxious about not sleeping? Does it yes. become a kind of awful cycle? Yes, it is. Because, you know, you've got to get up. You've got to get three children, you know, to their places or deal with the school holidays at the time. And um, also I had this job where I've got significant what I felt was responsibility to make sure I'm present and able to assist others. Um, and I'm... Um, yeah, not able to sort of sleep. It's very difficult. Do you think that there was a kind of extra pressure on yourself to sort this out because precisely you were a psychologist, your role was to help people with exactly the sort of, of problems that you were having? Yes, I think so. I think there's always been a tendency to see yourself as the expert and um, and that's how you have to present. I'm, I'm hoping that people are moving away from that more now and recognising that as psychologists we are, or any type of, you know, um, health professional, we are humans as well. But there was certainly a pressure to um, to be calm and, you know, there for others. On Conversations, my guest is Helen Elliott, who was working as a psychologist and a, a busy mother of three young children when she started feeling extreme symptoms of anxiety and, and that really manifested in a terrible insomnia. So when did it get to the point, Helen, that you thought, I, I've got to go to hospital? Was was there a moment where you realised that or, or how did that decision happen? Well, I never happen? wanted to go to hospital, Sarah. Um, I think I had in my mind that I would find something, some type of medication. I tried everything <laughs> i tried you know i saw a psychiatrist and i um, had also tried natural um you know therapies and um every type of different type of thing and um and just the insomnia kept continuing and i then um my husband was quite busy with his job and and had to go overseas and we were hoping that I'd be well by that stage. But I, So you're talking to him about Yes, yes. And, and, you know, he, he was in a difficult position because, you know, he, for his role he had to sort of be going away and, um, and we've got these three young children and, um, and I'm not getting better, as had been the hope from um, the initial psychiatrist had hoped that I would be better by this stage. So we're sort of looking at I was becoming unwell uh, in the January and then... Um, still by around the March, still very unwell. So um, one of my sisters from Canberra uh, rang and said, "I'm coming up. We're gonna we're gonna help you. You know, we're gonna f fix this," um, which was very moving. 
Uh, so I unfortunately I had to go to hospital, which was um, to the I went to the. Did she see that in you, or did you? I think recognize it. Was, it in I think yourself? the doctor had also said yes. Um, need to go to hospital, and um, and it was clear. Yes. Uh, so then I was I had to pack a bag or get help with that because it's a really difficult process to accept that you have to go to a psychiatric hospital, and it was not something I wanted to do. But um, unfortunately, I'd always, I'd always had private health cover, the top cover. I had um, changed, reduced my um, coverage because I didn't want obstetrics anymore. I'd finished my family raising and... Um, well, not raising, but... And, um, <laughs> Childbearing. Yes, it had just begun, really. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, when I got to the private hospital, um, it was apparent that I'd also lost my psychiatric cover. So this was in the March, and I then um, they so told me what it, kind of cost were we? It was going to be, I think, from memory, it was at least twelve to fifteen thousand a fortnight. A fortnight. A fortnight. Yes. Um, you know, and at that stage, you think, well, a fortnight seems a long time, but I ended up in hospital a lot longer. So, 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 so when they told yeah. you that, what did you do when they? When um, well, I was part of my condition was I was very anxious about what I was being, um, what medications I was taking. Was it the right medication? So. I made the suggestion that um, with my sister we would go off to the Royal Brisbane Hospital to get another opinion, get an assessment done there. And um, the psychiatrist I had uh, who was meeting me, trying to admit me to the private wrote out a letter uh, for me to take with me to the, to the uh, RBH. And what happened when you arrived there? Did you go, I mean, do you go to emergency? Where did you turn um, up? You go to hospital? emergency and you go into then the psychiatric emergency centre. I think it's the PEC. And um, I had the letter from the, um, from the doctor and it was a very gloomy um, letter about how I was feeling. So um, I was seen by one of the, I think a psychiatrist there, a registrar, I'm not sure, and um, he said that I wouldn't be allowed to, to leave. How did they assess you? How did they make that assessment? Uh, I think it was largely on the, from memory, the letter from the doctor, which sort of was saying that I was feeling very um, pessimistic about going on. Were they worried that you were suicidal? Yes, yes. Um, I think I had no clear plans, but um, my sense was that I was a burden to my family and um, that if I wasn't, if this was finished, that um, that they wouldn't be affected. You know, they would be sad, obviously, but my sense was that... Um, this burden I was putting on them would be um, would be over eventually. So all those red flags for, for a psychiatrist. Yes, yes. And when they said you had to stay, I mean, what what was your reaction? Were you relieved or was that a total Not relieved shock? at all. I, I actually negotiated to make it um, because I had this worry that it would affect my career. I actually said, can you make it in, uh, a voluntary admission rather than involuntary? But um, it was fairly clear they would have made it an involuntary admission if I, um, if I was going to say I'm not staying. Of course, you were feeling so distressed to be in that position in the first place. Did hearing that they were so concerned that they were insisting you stay, did that add another layer of anxiety and another um, layer of Well, the whole experience fear? of being um, there uh, for the day of the assessment, because you're there for many, many hours once it's been decided you are going to stay in one of the wards. What do they do next after that decision's um, all, made? All I recall um, was when my sister, was one of my sisters who was up from Canberra was with me. Uh, I remember very um, unwell psychotic people coming in and um, I don't remember... I don't remember much being provided, uh, anything, but um, I was given a sort of a medical I had to wait for. And um, I went in, it's very blurry for me, but I would say about 11 o'clock during the morning. And uh, yeah, that's a locked part of the hospital. And um, I would have been taken up in an ambulance from that part of the hospital to the, I would sort of call it the boondocks, <laughs> back of the hospital, uh, which is where the, the psychiatric hospital is, or the wards are. Uh, in an ambulance about 6pm, it was dark. And um, Why did they take you in an ambulance? I don't know whether it's a duty of care, or, and it's quite a fair way, I gather now. I have been back to sort of stick my head into the ward that um, where I was um, admitted. And uh, I gather that, you know, it's quite a distance and whether they just have to in terms of caution, I guess, if they've assessed your suicidal. And and when they opened the doors at this in this psychiatric unit, what were your impressions? What did it look like? Uh, I found it hor horrifying. It was, um, 
you know, big, big doors that close behind you that are locked. Uh, my sister was still with me. Um, you know, very sterile type of place. You're up very high. Um, so there is an outside concrete sort of area with a big caged, um, it's all caged in because it's up so high, I gather for the risk. Um, very sterile, you know, sort of, I remember thinking I'm never going to sit in those chairs, some plastic sort of chairs, you know, lined up in front of a TV, a pool table. And um, I was sort of, you know, sat down and um, I just remember this awful, which seems, you know, not a big deal, but awful food being presented to me. And um, and I, at that point, um, a good friend who worked in the children's part of the hospital came and was with me. So they were both supporting me with the idea that I was actually going to have to stay there. And then they left and um, stayed. Well, they found... Uh, there was a very kind nurse who I actually knew as a mother through school who, who was there. Um, that helped, but I had to be sedated by a psychiatrist to stay. Because you were so angry. I was so fearful. distressed. I, I can't... You know, I think... I, I don't know whether I would have been intelligible with what I was saying. I, there was a sense of almost like that sort of sense of rocking in the corner, like, what have I done? You know, why am I going to be... Um, that was my sense of what have I done because they, they go through your bag and take out anything that you might be at risk, you know, might harm yourself with. They take your phone, um, which is something I've... Now the, the Mental Health Act has changed so they don't do a blanket taking of everybody's phone um, because, I mean, these days I think even just taking someone's phone might, you know, cause them to <laughs> feel quite distressed. <laughs> but for me it felt like a really an imprisonment, Sarah. Did so. your kids know where you were? Um, no, it was all a very scary time for them and it wasn't a place that I would want them to come and visit. So um, there was a phone in the communal room and I spoke to them at times from there. How hard was that? Uh, very hard, yeah. And, and also the sense that, um, you know, my children sort of had to be looked after by friends and family and sort of it was a sense they were being taken away from me. And, you know, I'm, I'm like three weeks or something before I'd been trying to still be a therapist and then the next minute I'm in a locked um, ward in a hospital. What do you remember about that first night or, or what nights were like sleeping there? Uh, well, I was still troubled by not sleeping and this didn't help. Uh, I was in a room with four women um, and um, this has also been redressed. You know, they've, I've sort of spoken to people in charge of the ward since as part of my healing. I've spoken to the Commissioner of Mental Health and people sort of high up in the uh, hospital system about this process and I believe it has now, you know, changed. But it was a process of coming in to check on me every 15 minutes with a light shining on me and I felt, in the other hand, there was, a, was like Valium tablets to give me if I wasn't um, sleeping. So It's not going to help anyone sleep no. through the night. <laughs> no, it wasn't. So it was, yeah, it was quite an experience, the whole. What about the, like, was it segregated by gender? Were you just with other women or was it I a mixed I think there's ward? several wards there at the Royal Brisbane. Uh, I think I was given probably, I wouldn't like to say a better ward, inverted commas, but not with so many, uh, not men, I don't think. It was more women uh, and not sort of more the, yeah, it was sort of meant to be one of the easier wards for me to be on. And did you speak to them? I mean... Um, there was one particular young girl that I sort of uh, had quite an affinity with and my understanding I think is sometimes with young people with chronic mental health sometimes accommodation becomes difficult so I had the sense that perhaps she was there for quite some time because of finding accommodation uh, so she sort of you know um, befriended me and would sort of say to me you know you don't you know you don't you seem too sane <laughs> to be here and uh, my sister would bring in magazines for me and this girl was so appreciative of having the magazines because it wasn't like a place where you'd have a magazine or, you know, any type of <laughs> um, comfort. And what kind of treatment were you being given? Were, were they trying new medication? No, no I, I look back and I do... I mean, mine's only my perspective of it, but I wasn't, um, ha didn't have my medication changed at all, which was the medication I w was trialling through the psychiatrist um, who would have admit admitted me to the private. And so, no, I, I really was essentially, I feel like I stayed there just to, you know, to be sort of locked in and I left there none, none the, you know, better or um, it didn't have any therapeutic value. There was certainly some good um, help, uh, nurses, and there was one particular registrar who kindly gave me Professor Gordon Parker's book on um, melancholic depression, 
Um, and that was, you know, I made notes. I've got, you know, I've got a notebook where I made notes and that sort What's of... What's melancholic depression? Why did it resonate? Oh, I think because there's sort of, you know, the different types of depression and I'll do my best to sort of explain with the melancholic. I think it's more in terms of a biological-based, um, so more a sort of um, a slowing down type of, um, you know, with your body. And um, from what I read was sort of, you know, probably in my age group, I, I've passed the 40s and uh, maybe a, a family history history too of depression and um and that you can have stresses sort of trigger it but there is a biological predisposition to um to it and a lot of uh, from what i remember and what i've looked over with my notes from that book is a sense of guilt uh, which was strong for me particularly having left my career and feeling like i was distressing everyone and a lot of anxious rumination preoccupation um with you know with feeling guilty and um that type of thing so the anxiety that you were uh, had been suffering from for months was sort of a a manifestation of that melancholic depression yes 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 it it seems like that i mean i feel i've always been predisposition to um anxiety but this became a major depressive episode with anxious um distress is what it was termed and how long did you stay in that locked ward? How uh, I think it was at least a week. It's very hard for me to say because it's all so blurry, but um, I left, um, yes, at least it was at least a week. So I really just had to survive and try and normalise while I had people who were um, very unwell being dragged down from their, well, I wouldn't say true, but they were taken from their rooms into the um, windows, yeah, you know, behind in secure rooms. listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Helen, how were you doing after being in that ward? Uh, it was very tra- traumatic, I found it. Um, I'm one that sort of Googles things and um, part of my whole experience was, you know, trying to Google and, you know, I, I found one article by someone in Britain who'd sort of, you know, meant discussed her experience of being hospitalised in a locked ward like that. But there was very little um, support for dealing with with something like that. It almost sounds like a punishment rather than, than something that <laughs> well, was, yeah. could have been helpful. Well, it did feel like that to me. It didn't feel um, like a sort of nurturing <laughs> experience at all. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I understand there's difficulties with public mental health. Um, but um, for me personally, it was a, a very harrowing uh experience that just added to how bad I felt. So what were you doing once you were out of hospital to to try and get help? Well, I think it felt like I was just on this waiting in this waiting game then for my public uh, my private health to then um, kick over so that I could then go back to the private hospital and be covered. So really it was like a um, a limbo sort of period of uh, my sister, uh, one of my sisters in Canberra, uh, took me uh, into her home. So I left again uh, here with the family, and I spent three weeks in a bed in um, her house with, again, try, you know, through a doctor I had up here trying to um, trial different medications and, um, you know, different approaches. I, um, another sister was trying to help me, you know, to exercise. A brother was getting me to cook a lasagna. <laughs> and, um, and everyone was trying and um, it just couldn't, I just couldn't get better. It was... Um, Were your symptoms getting worse? Oh, it's hard to say. I, I think so. I mean, certainly the trauma then of having what I'd been through with the hospital and um, this just becomes a sense of am I ever going to get better and at the time you're getting these sort of sheer sort of terror sort of symptoms at times I remember going just to the groceries because you know people were trying to get me out and you just got this sort of really sense of um, unease and it's a you know I'd never had a lot of panic attacks in the past but just that sense of panic going through your body so uh, it's a terrible, terrible so way it's to be. Not just feeling down or or black; it's actually terror yes. as well. Yes, uh, just this sort of, I guess they call it sort of free floating anxiety, just coming through you. So, um, and you're completely just sort of 
you know, you can't sit there and watch TV or, um, you know, sitting at a table, you're sort of not, you're not there really. You're just sort of aware of this uh, terrible sort of acute anxiety coursing through your body. And when you were back at, in the family home, what what was that like? I mean, how were you going through the the day-to-day of, of running a family? Yeah, so I went back home and, um, you know, I had to take Valium to sort of get on the plane and um, and I'm not big for benzodiazepines, but I just sort of then with a lot of, you know, a lot of very supportive um, friends and, you know, my family support, um, I was then just trying to sort of, you know, manage the children, the basics that I could do. And um, I was doing strange things like even be- being still on tuck shop. You were on tuck <laughs> yeah. shop duty. <laughs> and I remember another... Helen, I did a Valium to do tuck yes. shop duty any day of the week. <laughs> I know. I remember one of the you know, psychiatrists saying to me, you know, someone in your state should really be in hospital. Was that actually keeping busy or trying to keep busy in that way, was that helpful? Uh, I think it's probably just that, again, a sense of guilt and sort of not wanting to let okay. people down with right. the, you know, sort of key personality. Um, characteristics of it as well. And was it partly not wanting other people to know that this crisis um, was happening? Yeah, I can't even say if I was that. It could probably, because I did. Uh, it did take me quite some time to ask, actually ask for assistance from a lovely person who then came in and supported me in the home with some with some you know home duties and who was instrumental while I again was hospitalised eventually. Uh, so yes, it was it was certainly difficult, and there were certainly messages you know you need to be in hospital, and that again was still didn't feel to me quite what I needed to be but it, did, it was it was where I needed to be in a decent sort of hospital. Yeah. When your private health care um, kicked in and you were able to go back into mm. hospital but to a private hospital yes what do you remember of arriving there how did it compare? Oh I remember again being completely grief stricken about the whole idea that I had to go again to a psychiatric hospital and I um, I had a friend who packed the bag for me um, because I Again. just couldn't. <laughs> yes. Well, so what, what was it? Was it the the concreteness of, of choosing things to take with you? Uh, I think it was just an absolute horrendous feeling of being away from your family, um, leaving your children. It was agonising. It was really like this enormous grief um, sense and just so frightening, um, I think. I mean, I'd been through frightening uh, with the previous hospital experience but it's just yeah it's hard to explain but um it's just probably the enormity of it the overwhelming and you're i've never sort of i've always liked you know being close to family and friends in the sense that you're leaving and and leaving and going yes when you arrived in this second hospital mm-hmm. what did they try first off well i um tried again different um psychiatric medications so different types of antidepressants a, an antipsychotic was brought into the picture um, because of the agitation that I experienced. It was felt that that medication would be helpful for calming me. And I did, I think, get a sense, a little bit more sort of sleep with that as well. And I had a, a very um, good psychiatrist who would see me every evening and he would say to me, you're, you're going to know when you're better, it's going to be like chalk and cheese. So it sort of gave me a sense of you know, I, I knew sort of, like, well, if I think I'm getting better, but I wasn't, you know, he'd say it's going to be like chalk and cheese. And so you could trust the experience you were having that this was still really yes, rotten. Yes, yes, yes. And I lay in that sort of hospital bed. It was much more, um, you know, comfortable surrounds and, um, you know, shared a room with someone, but it was, you know, it was pleasant and you felt comfortable to have your family come and, and visit. Um, but I wasn't, um, yeah, I wasn't getting better. Uh, even several weeks into the stay, it was apparent I wasn't getting any better. Did your kids come and visit? Yes, there? yes. And um, how was that? The youngest one, you know, just enjoyed the bed ride, you know, <laughs> going up and down. And, and at the time wasn't so bad for her because she was young and she quite enjoyed different friends, pick, you know, picking her up from school. Uh, I think my son found it difficult. He was only nine or ten and um, each time he left, it, he was very sad. Uh, and my tw- daughter was 12 at the time. I think that's a difficult time not to have your mother. It was very frightening. So she wasn't as keen as coming to visit, which is fair enough. Um, and, um, and you know, it was a place you could have a meal with your husband and you could sit down and um, courtyard, you know, there's green, you know, greenery and there's a gym. Um, so it was a very fortunate position to be in to have then my private health cover cover that. And you said that the different medications they were trying weren't, working no what did they suggest well um i sort of i kept notes of my 
you know, here and there. And um, from recently reading, it was about sort of four weeks in or three weeks into the stay, I went to um, the doctor again and at night and he said, uh, I think now, you know, we're going to have to try um, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. And I think um, it's not an uncommon process at the hospital I was at, but I always had a sense when I came that it was sort of me versus them. There was the group all having the ECT, and I thought, no, I'm never going to be having that. Why? What, what were your fears <laughs> or, or well, ideas about it? Well, I think um, the fears didn't really come into play until he said you're going to have this and of course it you know he can't say you have to have it I don't think but um but I knew that I had no other I was still at a very sort of I did think uh, I can't go on like this that was a key part of my you know illness had become I, I won't be able to survive I can't do it every day was sort of a sense um of some thoughts of um of not not living and um and uh, so he he said that was the next um, part of my you know, process, and I was absolutely um, inconsolable when I went back to my room. I, you know, I've never wept so much. Um, Is it because it felt like a failure that you were so unwell? Probably, you needed this? Sarah. Yeah, it probably did feel like a failure, and it um, and it was terrifying, like to think um, that I've never been one for general anaesthetics. I've only had one in my. I'd only had one in my life, and I'd had appendicitis at a young age, and. Um, and I think part of being an anxious person is you do want to have a sense of control all the time. So I sort of think now, like, you know, it's the ultimate in letting go, really, to give someone your body and your brain um, to treat it with um, ECT. Did the doctors explain why they thought you should have it or how it would help? Did um, you have a clear sense of that? No, I, I did have the confidence in my doctor because it's not something he does um, very often. He did say, I only do this once or, you know, twice, sort of, you know, a year type of thing. Um, so um, he sort of, yeah, helped me to feel comfortable that it was the right thing. And, um, and of course, I did all my Googling again, and there's some horror stories about ECT, which um, are concerning, and people have had experiences of memory loss that's significant. But I did sort of um, come up with the angle that, you know, I read a good article that described it as a benign process, really, these days, and something that someone with my type of depression, you shouldn't be mucking around um, if you want them to survive. Let's get to it. So. How does it work? Why does it help with depression? Oh, I'm not sure if they're really clear, even still. Um, I think it's something that, you know, only came up in the 20th, early 20th century. There's um, something they found that people who were depressed plus epileptic, you know, when they had the seizure, it helped to resolve the depression. Um, so I think um, somehow it sort of changes the brain uh, chemistry. And um, and these days it's, it is a sort of much more benign process without with a muscle relaxant used and there's still so many mysteries of the brain aren't there <laughs> yes. it's working but we don't know why <laughs> yes. so how did they prepare you when you agreed to have ect helen how do they prepare you physically for that you're sort of told that you'll be you know you'll go in early in the in the morning um and um and really you're sort of waiting in a waiting area just like you're waiting for a dentist or, or someone and um and then you go into and you're placed on like a like a you know I guess it's an operating bed, but it's a bed, you know, and there's a lot of staff around you. And um, and then um, you have a muscle, there's a muscle relaxant and the anesthesia. It's all a bit blurry for me, but a mask is placed over you. And from memory, they count back, count down and then you're, you've gone. So. Why the muscle relaxant? Well, I think the, the biggest thing, you know, from all the horror stories is that people would sort of thrash around um, from being given the, um, you know, electricity. So... Uh, that's to sort of make it now that it's only a very, I think they say there's some twitching of the toes even. It's not obvious, the seizure, but it, it does um, impact the so brain. So it, it is mirroring like an epileptic fit. So if you weren't yes. restrained or relaxed in some way, your body would, yes, that's right. would move. Yes. So you counted back and then did did you feel anything further? No, no. And I th I understand it's not a, it doesn't take long, the whole process, and then you go into a another room just on your own before you go to a communal room where um, you're sort of, you know, given some food and just to see how you are. And what do you remember of that sort of groggy waking up? Um, not a lot, really. Um, I think I just uh, felt a sense that, um, you know, it really did, 
impact me finally there was a there was a change what straight away you yes, could feel that yes on that on that first day so i'm oh. not sure whether it was you know after i'd gone back to my room and how soon but um i sort of made a note of you know that finally you know after months i've i've, I've started to feel a little bit motivated and and, and there's some hope um so, so was it like that chalk and cheese that yes your psych- yes, psychiatrist had explained yes. so you know that was sort of the, you know the beginning of week four and i was the only in hospital then for another couple of weeks because I had to have um, a course of ECT which was three times a week um, for two weeks. So six treatments yes. altogether and is that a common that that to have a number of, of treatments of uh, electroconvulsive yes, yes, therapy? Is. Yeah so um, I think that would probably be seen as the minimum um, course. And did you feel progressively better then? Uh, oh yeah so sort of you know I guess there was a sense of coming along in leaps and bounds in terms of you know I was able to sort of pick up and you know do things like knitting and um, and a sense of you know going home for some you know leave and really sort of engaging more and um, it was almost a sense of elation in the next you know little while and um, yes. It must have been an incredible sense of relief. Yes an incredible sense of relief for, for all that I was sort of you know back really. You said that uh, there's concerns about memory loss uh, with ECD, ECT as a possible side effect. Mm. Did you have experience any of that? Uh, I, I do feel like I've had some cognitive changes. Um, it, it's hard to, to explain. And I feel perhaps, and people might question my baseline, but I, I sort of feel perhaps that um, I'm not as sharp. Although, you know, there's lovely people I told said I told I had EC2 once recently. Said, oh, well, I would hate to have seen you before, you know, because <laughs> you seem quite sharp. But uh, sometimes the sense that I'm not recalling things as I used to. But I have to say uh, strongly that uh, I do feel it saved my life and um, and anything. You know, I'd hate to have lost lots of memory, but any sort of negatives um, have, you know, been outweighed by the sense that I'm still here. And that you feel you feel such a world away yes. from what you did. Yes. Is the idea with ECT that you have to have it, um, you know, regularly? Is it, is it a preventative technique uh, as well? It can be. Certainly people can have maintenance ECT. And uh, I would say, you know, it is scary that the relapse state, uh, statistics are very high even after ECT. So we're talking, you know, of saving people's lives, but it, mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's going to be for the long run. So in my case, I was given um, some pretty robust, you know, I'm still on robust um, antidepressant medication, which is the idea is that will be, um, you know, prevent any any further relapse. What was coming home like after that stay in, in hospital getting the ECT? Uh, well, again, I sort of feel like that period was a sort of I was feeling quite elated and you know happy to be sort of back and um, I'm just glad. But it, I don't think it was sort of like a smooth run. Like the last few years haven't been this you know like a smooth run in terms of that's it and you know <laughs> you're all better and, <laughs> and I've had to make a you know, a lot of adjustments in terms of my uh, probably my personality style and in what sort of ways? Oh, uh, I think just to be uh, probably a lot kinder to myself. Um, I've always been sort of one of those people with probably that unrelenting sort of sense of standards and um, a bit, uh, you know, rigid. Um, so sort of really make more room for um, for me and um, and for enjoying life a lot more than um, I was. So slowing things down as, as much as possible and... Um, and just and you know I, I think probably a big part has been sort of which is probably a bit glib but that sense of gratitude for you know has has really helped me to sort of try and be you know grateful for the smallest of things so have you been able to go back to work as a psychologist uh, soon after I was unwell, I took back on a, an assessing role that I do for a counselling program and, and that was helpful just for my sense of identity and for some income because I didn't have any income protection when I became, you know, sick. And um, and I, I've done some um, some work with talking to psychology students um, around self-care and, um, and, you know, talking about the impact of um, forgetting myself really. Uh, so uh, something I probably maybe down the track is sort of I'm interested in sort of helping maybe professionals or mental health professionals um, 
understand um, what can happen if you don't um, sort of look after yourself. So, um, but for now, my sort of priorities on uh, my family. I've got a daughter doing year twelve, and um, and it's just not worth it to um, flog myself like one of the psychiatrists said to me. Why are you flogging yourself? Uh, so, just yeah, a lot more balance. When you were having that stay in hospital. Tell me about the the things that you started doing to get a bit of better balance between your mind and your body. What sort of things did you start? Uh, well, yes, I um, I had a dear friend who'd had a, um, an illness and um, she had had a quilt made for her, which um, she lent to me uh, while I was in the hospital, a lovely bright quilt, and it said um, on the label, um, for those who lie under a, a blanket of... Uh, those who lie under a quilt lie under a blanket of love. And um, and soon after I got out of hospital, by chance a friend gave me a, um, you know, something, to, a leaflet about a patchwork group. So um, I joined a, a lovely group of ladies who have been instrumental in um, in me being well. And um, they sort of, you know, they quilt for refuges, as you know, for people in domestic violence situations, women and children, and, and just a group who are probably a little bit more mature in age than me. Um, but they have become dear friends and um, I feel blessed um, to, you know, to be able to see, see them each fortnight or so and be involved. So It offers that closeness and the, those friendship. But is there also something about just the physical process of quilting that you've got to focus your mind I on something so. your hands and I, are and doing? I think also probably more so things like knitting and things like that. I, I am a believer that doing stuff with your hands seems to calm the mind. So, yes, definitely. And are there other things that you've done with your lifestyle that kind of are helping keeping you well? Um, certainly I do a... Um, a form of or a practice um, called qigong, which has been really key um, in terms of being a person who tends to be in my head quite a lot. This sense of being able to be in my body um, through through the practice of qigong, um, I think it's a good metaphor for how I want to live my life. A lot of the qualities around that that exercise. It's kind is, of like tai chi. Well, it's Chinese based, and it's um, very much about sort of. Um, being in present in your body, um, loose, um, just a sense of flow more than you know pushing yourself to do things. Or um, so I just sort of find it something that uh, it does have a lot of precision with the movements. So you can't really be off thinking about other things, or you'll get picked up <laughs> uh, for that. And uh, and just I just feel like it's um, yeah, it's just been a really helpful um, practice for me. So you, you would have had through the quilting group and Qigong, Helen, a whole lot of new people in your life. Did you tell them about the experience you'd gone through? Did you tell them about having ECT? Um, well, I think I sort of quickly um, became interested in, um, you know, seeing other people who'd spoken about mental illness. So I, I watched TED Talks and, um, uh, you know, and I watched like Australian Story and a few of the people, the key people for me who have been like mentors have been Andrew Solomon who t talked about uh, forging meaning in bad things that happened to you. So that has been at the back of my mind um, since. And, and Sherwin Newland, who, who spoke about ECT, um, his experience. Um, and uh, also another person um, Australians, from Australian stories, Nick Newling, who um, I've been in touch with quite a lot. And he's been sort of so encouraging of, of me of um, with accepting my story and, and sharing it with others because that's something that he really strives to do but with the patchwork ladies the happy patches i, I <laughs> is that really their name, their name? the yes, happy patches <laughs> i wrote them a poem but um <laughs> but they i do recall when i did tell them it was about um the october you know a year later after i joined and i hadn't told them why i was you know why i was this younger person who was available you know quite a bit and um they were talking about mental health week because there were a lot of the programs on the abc and and one of them said, oh, you know, it seems to happen to really smart people. <laughs> so I took the opportunity. I was having, making a cup of tea. And I came out and I said, well, actually, <laughs> this is what happened to me. And, and just through circumstances like that, and with my dear friends and people I meet on the street, I've had a lot of affirmation. People have been very affirming um, of it. So I think it helped for me with the stigma that I probably held myself to start feeling like I don't have to be ashamed of this. Um, you know, if I'd gone into hospital with a broken leg, you know, it's or, you know, diabetes or cancer, it's the same thing. My mind um, broke and my spirit broke. And um, I feel strongly that people shouldn't feel ashamed. So. It's, um, it's powerful, I think, for people 
to hear of the experience of someone who's gone through the trauma you have, the challenge and and come through it. But it must also be powerful for you to to share that, to let yourself be uh, a bit more vulnerable maybe with people. Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I used to always joke that I'd leave the last um, session for myself when I was a therapist. And, you know, I ended up a lot more troubled, really, or, you know, ill um, compared to the people I was seeing. But uh, yes, it's, um, it is, um, it's a, I guess even just being here today is like a surreal sense. Um, yeah, I don't sure if I'm. How how does your day to day life now, Helen, compare to you, the Helen back in say 2013? Uh, I think it's you know it seems a bit cliche to say you know they say a breakdown it can be a breakthrough is what a lot of people say. Um, and I have to say that I do have to remain mindful that what I have had is a, often a recurrent type of illness. So I, I can't just sort of think I've had that, you know, I've had ECT and I've got medication and I'm over it. I have to be mindful that I don't, you know, I don't take on too much, that I do stop and sort of have some quiet time. Um, but I, I think just I'm probably more in the moment than I than I used to be. I I don't have to keep striving to be some, you know, amazing professional or um i've got three you know beautiful children a loving husband and amazing uh, world of friends and family and um i think i you know i enjoy just sort of when i meet people on the street and um and i do i do share my experience i'm going to throw in now that i did the noosa triathlon <laughs> late last year and on the way up there i met a lovely fellow and you know he ended up he was an much older man but he gave me chips on the bike riding just as i was taking the bike up which was great <laughs> and I, I ended up telling him i said you know i'm here you know i almost wasn't here and um you know and he tells me his story you know of a major heart attack you know and um if he's listening <laughs> his wife's name was helen and um and it's just people like that i really enjoy talking to and i've had some you know amazing um interchanges with people through being honest and, and as you say vulnerable I'm not, i don't have to be the expert helen it has been wonderful to meet you and i'm so grateful for the generosity and vulnerability that you shared with us today there was something else you wanted to mention i about- did and, and foremost i guess because i am um i am here and i've been fortunate enough to have this opportunity Part of my recovery has been about promoting programs or people who are doing so much for um, mental health in this country, which is, includes Nick Newling. And um, I really do want to put out for people there um, the Genetics of Depression study. If you have experienced depression, please um, get in touch with geneticsofdepression.org.au. You can be involved in a groundbreaking study, which will mean that uh, it may mean that your children won't have to suffer for a pro- prolonged time like you have or other loved ones have. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski on ABC Radio. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Helen Elliott was my guest today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au/conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.